so this evening I'd like to reflect on the on a particular theme, the theme of solitude, but most specifically the joy of solitude. There are, of course, a lot of different versions of what the Buddha said to his students just before he died, and they they range from the rather terse to the rather flowery. And the terse version is, well, I've told you what to do, now get on with it. And the more flowery version that I'd like to begin this talk with this evening is very much incorporated into a, a poem by Mary Oliver that I'm very fond of called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness, to send up the first signal, a white fan, streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solid trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upwards, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretch forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I'm touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the face of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light. Make of yourself an island. These are oft-quoted words in this teaching. In my understanding, that this path of awakening, this path of freedom, is very much rooted, is very much rooted in, in both a love of solitude and a love and an ease within aloneness. But it's not a dissociated aloneness. It's a solitude and aloneness in which we can feel really fully at peace with ourselves, with others, with the world. But equally, this path of freedom, this path of awakening, is rooted in a sense of interconnectedness. We are relational beings. We are also alone. And as much as you hear the instructions in the Buddhist tradition, you know, to really cherish solitude, to really appreciate the preciousness of solitude. The Buddha equally gave just as much encouragement to his students to establish community. So it's almost like what apparently feels a paradox. The Buddha would say, Go and take your seat at the roots of a tree or in an empty hut and contemplate, establish yourself in mindfulness and in solitude. And he would pray sangha or community 
as being one of the triple gems, one of the pillars of the path, the place where we also actually seek refuge. I think we hold this, this paradox in our own life, how to be alone, how to be related, how to be in relationship. What we see is that each one of us here, of course, has a personal story which is really quite unique to us. The story of our past, the story of our bodies, the story of our hearts, the story of our dreams, our hopes, the memories of our moments of hurt, of longing, of fear. And there's nowhere, I think, in this path where we're just asked to somehow pretend none of this happens. You know, there's nowhere in this path where we're encouraged to, in any way, abandon that story. But in many ways, to understand it as the classroom of our awakening and Quite frankly, in my mind and in my experience, I, I heard too much of that instruction. You know, let go of your story. You know, just let go of your story. Have you tried that? <laughs> oh, if you haven't, please feel free. You know. <laughs> And, and it's almost as if, you know, the, this whole life, is, uh, when we hear that instruction, I almost hear it in that, in that sense that this whole life is somehow an obstacle. It is something to get over. It's something to transcend. It, it's something to get rid of. And you wonder how you would be in the world if you were successful in doing that. I mean, would you even remember how to get home? or who to get into bed with, you know, or who your children are. You know, so there's some way that that instruction, the way it's delivered at times, really just doesn't make sense. And my understanding of this path is so firmly rooted in the classroom of our lives, including the classroom of what we call our story, this whole stream of events and experiences and conditions that have come together to bring us here, actually, to bring us here in this body, to bring us here in this mind, to bring us here in this heart. This is actually where we learn our deepest lessons of peace. It's where we learn our deepest lessons of compassion and awakening. Yet we're also invited to expand the field of our awareness and, and to understand the many ways, the myriad of ways, in which our personal story really lives within the universal story. And it is that understanding that brings spaciousness into our personal story, but it does much more than this. Expanding our personal story into the universal story of everyone in this room, everyone beyond this room, everyone we've ever known, all of those we've never met. To expand our awareness into that universal story is truly the ground of empathy. It's the ground of compassion. It is that expansion and that understanding, I think, that places us really firmly in the family of all beings. 
we only need to look around us here and at all the beings that we know and don't know beyond these walls and we see the universal themes of our stories. The realities that we are all born, we will all change, we will all age, we will all die, we all share the reality of our mortality, we share in our capacity to know sadness in the face of loss, to know fear in the face of uncertainty and unpredictability, to know shakiness in the midst of a life that we know is ungraspable and will never actually stand still for us. We also share in our longings for safety, for love, for acceptance. And we also perhaps in our hearts know that the deepest lessons of transformation in our lives we learn within. In many ways, we learn alone. And certainly in our lives and at our deaths, we may be fortunate enough to be surrounded by those who love us. Yet, in truth, it's only us who can really make peace with both our living and our dying. Only we alone who can truly understand the ways of our own hearts and minds and Truly, it is our efforts and our sincerity and our commitment that this shows us a way to bring torment and struggle to an end. In many ways, it is we alone who really learn the lessons of, of contentment and freedom. We can have many, many friends on this path, and we are fortunate if we do. Yet in a profound way, we do stand alone learning what it means to be at peace with ourselves, what it means to be free, what it means really to bring to an end all sense of lack inwardly, to bring to an end all sense of insufficiency within ourselves. And in many ways, I feel it is that inner freedom that really opens a door to a genuine sense of community, a, door, a, a doorway in which we find a genuine, authentic sense of, of relatedness. And, you know, in this path, it's this quality of solitude that we're really asked to learn to love and to find joy in. And I think it is that joy that is perhaps one of the greatest manifestations of emotional maturity. You know, Paul Tillich, he once wrote, he says, our language has wisely sensed the two sides of being alone. It has created the word loneliness to express the pain of being alone. And it has created the word solitude to express the glory of being alone. In the poem, Mary Oliver <clears throat> speaks about the Buddha looking into the face of a frightened crowd as he offered his last teaching, perhaps recognizing, as we may recognize for ourselves, the somewhat kind of almost existential anxiety that can govern our hearts and lives. It is a Christian mystic 
who once described anxiety as the mood of ignorance, or as anxiety is the mood of, not, of, of confusion, of bewilderment, of not knowing how things actually are, not being at peace with how things actually are. Anxiety is perhaps the, the mood, you know, when, when we, that mood is there, we look at the world, when we look at the world through the eyes of, of insufficiency or incompleteness, solitude really does look like loneliness. It looks, it has the feeling of being bereft, of not knowing who we are, of having no way to, to temper the kind of painful feelings of insufficiency. And, you know, you might have tasted those feelings yourself. And, and we know when those feelings of lack, those feelings of insufficiency are really present in our life, you know, that something is missing. Something's not complete. It, those are not kind of um, behavioral, behaviorally or emotionally neutral feelings. They, they tend to be the feelings that kind of propel us out into the world, you know, moved by kind of like the voice of a, of a sort of hungry ghost within looking outwardly to, to the world, to other people, really for the reassurance that we're okay. The reassurance that we're lovable, the reassurance that we're acceptable, the, the reassurance even that we are someone. And I'm really aware of how solitude requires so much courage, the courage to enter into that space of uncertainty, of not knowing, to turn towards it. You know, in my early years of training, I, when I lived in the, the foothills of the Himalayas, um, it, by the way, it sounds much more romantic than it, than it actually was. It sounds very nice, I lived in the foothills of the Himalayas. Anyway, there's a lot more to that story. But, but just along the, the hillside from me, um, there was this Tibetan monk, and he'd, he'd fashioned this cave in the side of the mountain, you know, just by putting together some stones in the front of an overhang. And the cave was so little. You know, he, he couldn't stand up in it. He could, he could only sit. It was designed, by the way, to sit in. But, but sitting was his life. So he, he, he lived there. He just lived there for years. You know, he, he didn't come out. He didn't have a social life, you know. He, he didn't have people who told him he was just doing great, you know. And he was a fantastic person, you know. And... You know, apart from all the hardship of it, which was obvious, by the way, there was no central heating or air con or any of those things, you know, and people would come and leave food outside. And, of course, some people would regard that as foolishness. Uh, but, uh, actually, whenever you did see this guy, he, he walked around with the most amazing radiant smile on his face, and he was not loopy. And he, he was all there. And I just thought, just like, how much courage that took. Every day, if you could imagine it, how much courage that took to, to live within that uncertainty. It was a 
piece I came across, it says, to walk a path of awakening, we must first find the courage to turn towards ourselves, enter what can feel like a desert of loneliness, insufficiency, and see it change through kindness and understanding into a garden of solitude. And perhaps that's a little bit what we do here. Perhaps we learn to approach ourselves. We, we learn to, to find that inner dignity and that inner containment. We learn to, to not lean all the time in our lives. We learn to, to rest inwardly. And of course, that learning is so much guided by kindness, by curiosity. You know, some time ago, I was, I was attending a meeting with a, a colleague at a university and we happened to have our meeting in the, in, the, in the canteen, the dining room of the university. And it was filled with young undergraduates. And, and so it was probably really not an uncommon sight anymore that you know, these young people would come together to meet for lunch. And the first thing, it was like the new, a new ritual of the day. The first thing you do is you plonk your phone on the table in front of you. You know, and, and watch this dance, you know, a little conversation, check the phone, you know, a little conversation, bing, there's a message, you know, a little conversation, oh, look, they're going to text, you know. And, and I just looked at this dynamic and I thought, ah, okay, it's kind of like the worst of both worlds. <laughs> you know, you're neither genuinely connected, neither are you alone. And it's like you're straddling these worlds and, and, you know, afraid almost, afraid to turn it off. You know, and of course, that's what we do when we come on retreats. We learn to turn it off. And, you know, that, that fear of turning it off, of course, is even being pathology, pathologized. It's called FOMO. <laughs> you know, fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. Missing out on all those messages that are telling me I'm loved and I'm cared for and I'm okay. Now, I think a silent retreat does give us this remarkable opportunity to explore our own relationship to solitude, to begin to befriend it, to taste what it is, really, to be unconditionally present both for ourselves and with ourselves. And at the same time, to taste what it is to be together with others in this, this very unusual way, where we're not, not losing ourselves in all of those exchanges of, you know, reassurance or criticism, reassurance or criticism, always needing to be somebody. And we see how much our sense of being somebody is, you know, how prone we are to, to measure ourselves and judge ourselves via the medium of how we perceive or imagine other people are judging or measuring us. And of course, it does happen. You know, you're with someone who offers you words of affection and praise and warmth. And it makes us feel good. It makes us feel lovable. It makes us feel worthy. Then you're with someone else who delivers words of blame and criticism or coldness, and you feel your shape of self changing, don't you? Into someone who's, who's not really quite good enough, you know. 
who's unworthy. And, and silence, the kind of silence we have here is a renunciation of that medium, of being shaped through through the perceptions or the imagined perceptions of others. And so what are we left with? We're left with our own voices, aren't we? Our own voices of praise and blame, our own voices of measuring and judging and comparing, our, our own voices of evaluating. And in this whole kind of you know, noise and whispers and shouts of those voices, what it really does for us, us is it makes us acutely aware of what we are not at peace with inwardly. You know, and what you are not at peace with inwardly is what you find yourself obsessing about or being preoccupied with. The Buddha re- refers to it as a kind of emotional indebtedness, you know, and, and that feeling of being in debt to something, that there's no freedom within it. And that's what, so when we see our minds constantly returning to some very familiar obsession, very familiar preoccupation, we know that this is what we are not at peace with. We know this is where we're asked to find the understandings, the compassion, the, the care to make peace with what is not peaceful. And we also perhaps, and you might have experienced this already today, begin to sense the patterns of abandonment, inner abandonment, that are are provoked by the discomfort of being with oneself. Or really uh, are provoked even by our anxiety about solitude. And it's really interesting to look today, just to look back today and and to reflect if there's any ways that you've spotted yourself inwardly practicing self-abandonment or fleeing from solitude. Sometimes it's just entertaining ourselves, isn't it? You know, well, don't want to be here. I'll just manufacture some inner entertainment, you know, plan my vacations, I'll recollect some juicy memory, you know, I'll I'll think about tomorrow or I'll have a few thoughts about a few people here and where they got that nice shirt from and, you know, why they walk like that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways we just kind of distract ourselves, isn't it? I mean, if you look at those thoughts, I mean, they're not really very useful, are they? They don't particularly enrich our lives. Um, but, but they keep us busy. They keep us busy. Uh, you know, some of the ways that we abandon ourselves is just through numbing out. You know, don't like being with myself. That's the easiest way. Just fall asleep. You know, just nod off. Just space out. Sometimes we get abandoned. That, uh, find that discomfort of being alone. <coughs> Expressed just simply in busyness. I just keep doing I'll just keep doing, I'll just keep myself busy. I don't have to feel what's going on. You know, and even on retreats, we can be so incredibly, cleverly creative about keeping ourselves busy. For a place where you've got nothing to do. (laughs) And 
there's something, you know, in this path where, where we're not judging any of this. You know, we're not judging any of this. We're just starting to be aware of it, and we're starting to be curious about it. You know, these moments of, of dissociation, these moments of disconnection, they're not inviting blame. They're inviting the sense of curiosity and really a, a kind of question of, can we actually learn to love non-distractedness? What would be really asked of us to learn to, to love wakefulness, to love that, that inner sense of, of, of really being embodied, that, that quality of unification of body, mind, heart, present moment? What would it be asked of us, not just to practice this, but to actually have a passion for it, to actually love it, and, and even to, to really begin to, to sense that this might be a source of great joy. Not of fleeting moments of pleasure, but this really might be a source of great joy. Your solitude, I think, is a very multi-spectrum word and experience. And it, but its heart is really simple, isn't it? Because the heart of the love of solitude is actually befriending ourselves. It's not, it's not something complicated. It's not something very esoteric. Its heart really is about learning to befriend ourselves. Not just the lovely, but also the unlovely. And in, in that befriending, in that willingness to, to attend inwardly, to really inhabit our being, to begin to cultivate, to begin, you know, and we, we will speak about this a lot during the retreat, you know, we are not learning to sit like a frog on a lily pad. We are learning to cultivate. We are learning to cultivate the lovely qualities of heart and mind that really free us of those compulsions of self-abandonment, that allow us to, to rest within our own being and to rest in an inner collectedness, which in itself is an expression, it's an inner commitment to being fully awake with what is. And I think in this tradition, that quality of awareness, that quality of present moment, recollection, this is the foundation of all insight and inner stillness. Cultivating non-distractedness, you know, I really see it as a discipline of kindness. And it is a discipline, isn't it? Because distractedness is such a habit, isn't it? Have you noticed that so many small ways here, you know? I mean, you know, you're, you're heading from the meditation room to your walking path outside, and you've got to pass that notice board. <laughs> you know, and, and it's not planted there, really, as a teaching tool. It, 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 it's just a convenient place to have it. But watch what your eyes do. You know, and, and that kind of foyer area, you know, there's a lot there to get busy with, you know. You know, you've read all the housekeeping manuals, you know, you could do all the jobs, you know, you know, the bell ringing routine, you know. There's a lot to get busy with. But just notice how easy it is, you know, for that, have that intention, and then something just takes you away. Hmm? And the intention gets undermined. 
But so a, discipli a discipline, it's, it's not a discipline of forcing in any way, but of noticing these moments and really learning to swim against the tide of that habit, the habit of fragmentation that leads us to get so lost. You know, and it's not just the outer that it, you know, becomes a source of distractedness, is it? I mean, the sense of just being lost, you know, in thoughts, in fantasies, in, in memories, in planning, in rehearsal, and learning to be still and present. 10,000 joys and sorrows, 10,000 thoughts every day. It's, it's estimated the average person, 67,000 thoughts a day, is that right? Something like that. 67,000 thoughts a day. Think about it, that's average. You may think you're above average. You're doing very well. You, yeah. But think about 67,000 thoughts a day. Every single one of them is a doorway to preoccupation. Think of that minefield. Every single one of them can be a doorway to preoccupation and distractedness. So you think about what we're doing here. It's quite something, isn't it? Amidst those 67,000 thoughts, never mind the 100,000 sense impressions or tens of hundreds, you know, many hundreds of thousands of sense impressions a day that also offer that doorway to distractedness, to being lost. Quite something what we're doing here. And it is really a discipline. You really see that discipline of kindness, don't you? Of just swimming against that tide, of just that moment-to-moment -moment collecting, moment-to-moment -moment coming back and not departing not departing from our own being. You know, in the, in the Tibetan uh, cosmology, you know, it's very colorful, but they, they speak, uh, one part of it, they speak about the realm, this realm of the gods, you know, this, this kind of blissful realm where these gods live. You know, and, and in this realm of existence, everybody's healthy, everybody lives a very long time, everybody's comfortable, everybody's affluent, nobody gets sick, you know, there are no problems. It's unadulterated pleasure, basically. So, so in this realm, of course, they, these beings spend their time in these pleasant diversions day after day with never the idea of practicing the Dharma or you know, cultivating anything. And then suddenly the whole thing falls apart. You know, they, they come to this point where they're facing, suddenly confronted with death. And it's said that the primary suffering in this realm of the gods is their own forgetfulness and heedlessness. And actually what we see is it's really easy to live and practice in ways that don't serve us well. And that it's much more difficult to live and practice in ways that do serve us well. Hmm? And this is kind of a sadness, but it's also a question, it's also a challenge. And this is what we're learning to do, to, to calm the distractedness, to calm the habits of abandonment. And what we're learning here is, of course, not just a retreat lesson. This is a lesson for our lives. Disentangling from the world, establishing ourselves in mindfulness and in solitude, moment to moment, again and again. Now, when we talk about disentangling from the world, you know, this has nothing to do with pushing the world away. It's about the wise use of our sense doors, including the sense door of our mind. Learning to, to kind of track the ways 
that we do get entangled and lost, you know, in, where, where we actually want. It's, it's more, more than the habit pattern. Sometimes we just want the world to excite us. We want the world to gratify us. We want to, the world to provide for us the sense of aliveness that at times we feel to be absent inwardly. And it's almost like looking to the world of sense experience to deliver that sense of wakefulness. And this is where we get entangled. So what is wise use of the sense doors? You know, in this tradition, we speak about it as not grasping at the sense impression or the association with it. The sound of the bird comes. It's lovely. Not grasping hold of it. Not going into all the memories of, you know, my many adventures bird watching or my future life as a twitcher, as I call it in England anyway. And we hear the sound of the lawnmower, you know, not grasping at the sense impression or the association with it. Could be lots. Hmm? Think of your own mind. A thought comes. Not grasping at the thought or the associations with it. Not moving into the world of good and bad and right and wrong. Because this is the nature of entanglement. There's also a saying in the Tibetan tradition that preoccupations will never die. Preoccupations will never end until we die. They end when we put them down. The sense of that. A teacher I admired from the past once said, In this perfect secluded place, a mountain hermitage, everything one does is good. The mountain hermitage is not describing a geographical location. In many ways, mindfulness, genuine mindfulness, inner recollection, uh, establishing oneself in solitude, this is our mountain hermitage. This is seen to be a place of receptivity, of appreciation, of compassion, of love, arising from that quality of inner stillness and really leading back to stillness. It's about being able to move in this world, this complex world, without being governed, not by the world, without being governed by what we want from the world. That's the most important piece. Without being governed by what we want from the world, not being governed by a sense of need, by a sense of lack or insufficiency. In many ways, that It's the root of all generosity. It's so important as we begin a retreat to to remind ourselves, I think, that perfection has never been the goal of this path. Freedom and compassion are the goals of this path. Learning to be at ease in solitude really means finding within ourselves compassion for imperfection and tolerance for discomfort. Without these qualities, we are always going to be prone, I think, to flee from ourselves, 
to flee from the imperfect, to fear it and, and to abandon. And the way that that manifests, of course, is, is aversion, aversion in the forms of blame and shame and judgment. Times aversion, man- I think aversion manifests in two ways, I think. One way that aversion manifests is, is a kind of uh, withdrawal manifestation. You know, we, we, we withdraw, we, we interfere into resistance, into denial, or into numbness. And the, the other way that aversion manifests is much more the sort of attack mode, you know, and the attack mode that I see in retreats is, is this, this incredible compulsion to become something. You know, the, the pursuit of the ideal image of who we should be and what we should be experience. You know, I think, the, I think of this as the attack mode, you know, the, the, the pursuit of the perfect meditator who has the perfect meditation experience. There's not much room in there for compassion, is there? There's not much room in there for, for the tolerance or, or, or the very radical acceptance of, of the discomforts that come to every human life. You know, it's not surprising those compulsions are there, you know, because we're so force-fed ideals of perfection from all the messages that we receive from the world that, you know, you, you need to earn and merit worthiness. It's not enough just to be. You know, you have to deserve it. You have to earn kindness, or you have to earn love or acceptability. This this path comes from a very different perspective. That everyone, including ourselves, is fully deserving of compassion, of kindness, of learning to embrace the imperfect, and learning to be upright within discomfort. I think solitude is really this antidote to the pattern of forsaking ourselves. And, and, and the Buddha speaks, you know, about this. Very, it's very counterintuitive almost, you know, because we can see that all of these patterns of aversion, abandonment, you know, they're all patterns of agitation, aren't they? And what do you think the Buddha's su- suggestion for agitation was? Stillness. Be more still. Cultivate stillness. Be more still. You know what agitation does to you behaviorally, doesn't, don't you? You get moving, you get busy. You, you can get busy in your body, you get busy in your mind. You know? A Buddha's suggestion is stillness. Be still in the body. Learn to calm the agitations of the mind and heart. Cultivate stillness in the midst of this. We sit and we walk with ourselves, we listen inwardly, we glimpse moments of great loveliness, of spaciousness, of sensitivity, of of kindness, of generosity, and and we meet the unlovely. And, you know, I think a lot of solitude is about our willingness to, to genuinely explore our relationship with the unlovely, with the difficult, the imperfection. I, I personally have seen in my own life that my relationship with the, discom- the uncomfortable and the imperfect 
and the unpleasant very much comes to define who I believe myself to be. You know, if my relationship with the imperfect and discomfort is only one of fear or aversion or anxiety, you know, that will govern my life. That will form my sense of self, that I'm a fearful person. I'm incapable of meeting this. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not able enough to, or have the courage enough to meet this. And that is a life of flight, isn't it? Always, always running, always avoiding, always trying to get rid of, always trying to move towards a, that elusive, pleasant, ideal moment. It's an anxious life. I think solitude really rests upon our capacity to stand in the midst of all things, to stand in the midst of the difficult. And we're learning to do this. It's a practice of equanimity. It's a practice of non-identification, learning. And you know, this sounds so simple, but you know you cannot define yourself by the contents of your mind. You know, you, you cannot define who you are by the contents of a single sitting or a single walking. You just, it's, 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 not, it's not wise, if I might say that. <laughs> it's not wise. You know, this is a momentary shaping of self, identification. Whenever you define yourself by the content of your mind or the content of your experience, what you experience is this momentary, elusive shaping of a sense of self. I'm good, I'm terrible, I'm terrific, I'm a failure, you know. Oh, fantastic sitting, I'm a great meditator, you know, crummy sitting. Uh, my, my future is a failed mystic. You know, you, you just... You just you, know, you just, you just see, you just see that happening. And don't you just get a sense after a while that this is not really a very wise way to be in this world. Not a very wise way to be with ourselves. You know? The highs and the lows of that. I, th- I think it, solitude is really a commitment of courage to, to sit and to walk and to live and be in the midst of it all. You know, that, like that metaphor of the mountain you know, that, that is touched by all of the elements and yet is not shattered. You know, one, one of the uh, uh, aspects of Kuan Yin, the, the kind of manifestation, the deity, the manifestation of compassion, is holding, is likened to holding a willow branch that can bend beneath the storms of life but doesn't get broken and comes upright. And that, that is the kind of practice that we're doing here. You know? By not identifying, not defining ourselves by the contents of our experience, we see the winds of our mind, we see the winds of our heart, we see the winds of our life really blow through us. And we, we do bend sometimes, you know. We do bend. We're, we're not, uh, you know, made of stone. We, we bend sometimes, but we learn we can bend without being broken. And we can come upright. Compassion really knows imperfection as suffering and not as fault. Not as something to be blamed or shamed. Not as something that describes a brokenness. But it's also imperfection, I think, you know, as part of understanding that, you know, we, like others, all beings in this world, are actually not exempt from the first ennobling truth. 
It's what places us in the family of all beings. And the first ennobling truth, you know, really just says there is imperfection in all things that are conditioned and born. You know, they change. They cannot be controlled. They do not stand still for us, not outwardly and not inwardly. So this, this, there is imperfection in this. And, you know, I think somehow the, this fear of imperfection or this disdaining of imperfection is, is almost like saying that, oh, okay, the first ennobling truth, that applies to everybody else. You know, everybody else has pain in their lives. I know that, you know. Everybody else has loss. Everybody else has grief. Everybody else feels their world crumbling down. Not me. Somehow I should have to get out of jail free card. And there's something very humbling. I think there's something very humbling about embracing the first ennobling truth. But it's not only humbling, it's also opening because it's really what places us in the family of all beings. It really is the ground of compassion. You know, solitude has, has a nature. It has a nature. It has a nature of calm abiding. And we see that we really only love solitude when we can bring that compassion inwardly, when we can actually feel to be at peace with ourselves and also at peace even within the imperfect and the unlovely. You know, that peace does not depend upon just feeling good, doesn't depend upon only having lovely thoughts or good experiences. You know, peace depends on how we hold all of this. After the Buddha would invite people to take their seat at the foot of a tree or in an empty hut, he would follow that instruction with the instructions on being mindful within the body, cultivating this present moment recollection. And then he would say, being mindful of breathing, breathing in, and this sounds weird initially, but I will explain this, breathing in, calming the formations, breathing out, calming the formations. So there's a real intentionality in that mindfulness of breathing. You know, it's not about the number of breaths in a row, it's, it's not becoming a good breather, it's not about getting concentrated. You know, it's about breathing in, calming the formations. And if you look at the, the kind of background meaning of that word, it means calming all the patterns of agitation. Breathing in, calming the agitation in the body, in the mind, in the heart. Breathing out, calming the agitation in body, mind, and heart. And I really want you to somehow incorporate that, or would really encourage you to incorporate that in the practice. I can't tell you how many people I speak to who sort of disconnect mindfulness of breathing from any form of intentionality or meaning. And it has this sense of intentionality behind it. It has this sense of direction actually, and meaning, because it's that calming of the agitations. Every moment is a little bit of a step into stillness. It's a little bit more of a step into quietude. And, you know, it's a little bit of a step out of identification and out of taking it all personally. It's breathing in, calming everything that's agitated. Breathing out, calming everything that's agitated, and knowing this is a verb. So, you know, it's not about getting calm after all the agitations go away. You know, it's calm tomorrow. 
It's, it's calm in relationship. It, it's a verb. We are calming in this moment. Not to some future goal, but calming in this moment. And we don't have to look far for agitation, do we? You know, if, you, if you'd look, just cast your mind, you know, how is your mind and body and heart right now? You know, are you waiting for me to shut up so you can get out of here? You know, are you thinking about the nice cup of tea at the end of the talk or that lovely bed that's waiting for me? You know, I mean, are you kind of thinking about, you know, my day wasn't good enough, you know, or my tomorrow needs to be better? I mean, have you seen agitation today? You know, do you see it right now? To bring this really into a present moment context, what would it be to calm all of that? to allow yourself to rest in that stillness rather than feeding the agitation with more agitation, knowing that whatever we feed in this life will grow. You know? Whatever we practice, we get better at usually. You know, and if we practice agitation, we get really good at it. You know? And if we practice calming, this too actually becomes a naturalized kind of skill inwardly. And you know, when you begin to taste quietude, when you begin to taste stillness, I think we get really a little bit disenchanted with the whole world of agitation. You know, all of those constructions, don't you just get tired of them sometimes? You know, the endless fantasies, the endless rehearsals, you know, the endless constructions of what might be, they get exhausting after a while. And, you know, we just get a little disenchanted. We're just like a little bit less prone to go there. You know, we can start, see these constructions starting with that. And I think there's another option here. That's a tremendous freedom, actually. That's not a freedom to underestimate. That's a tremendous freedom. Calming, calming, learning to relinquish the agitations of the heart. A love of solitude rests upon, you know, these inner qualities of being at peace with ourselves, non-identification, courage, compassion, but also contentment. I would never kind of underestimate the power of contentment. I have an old mother And I remember last year or the year before, she said to me, you know, she says, there's nothing I want anymore. She said, I've always wanted something. She said, I thought that would be terrible, not to want anything anymore. She says, you know, it's strangely peaceful. So I'm not asking you to abandon all your aspirations for your life, but to to recognize contentment. This is a curious, often not spoken about quality. I believe that people entering the monastic life, these are much of their teachings, learning to be content with whatever food, whatever shelter, whatever clothing is offered, learning to be content within that. But I think it's much bigger than that. It's a lesson for our life, isn't it? It's not just a lesson for monastics, because it's a teaching about not leaning, about not depending, about not, not believing that our happiness, our well-being, our, our inner sense of sufficiency is somehow held in the, in the hands of conditions, of getting what we want and rearranging our world appropriately. The genuine peace and contentment actually lies in our own hearts not being a prisoner, not being a hostage 
of the world of, of conditions. This was one of the major teachings of the Buddha. We are encouraged to learn from our lives, to learn from our disappointments, to learn from our own moments where loveliness has really been touched inwardly. We are asked to learn not to reject the world, but to relinquish the inner culture of lack. This is what allows a love of solitude truly to flourish. We learn to explore the landscape of contentment and to live at ease within the nature of uncertainty, the intrinsic uncertainty of all of our lives. We know this in our bones to be true. And we learn to rest within that knowing. Learning to be still, Learning to still, we sow, sow the seeds of, of our capacities for really a great spaciousness, a great calmness, a great sense of, of sufficiency inwardly. And we're doing this moment to moment. And in that, I think we're really following some of the Buddha's last instruction to learn how to be a refuge to ourselves to really learn how to be an island and yet also to live within a community of beings from which we're never, never disconnected. If we could have just a moment quietly and then we'll have a time for some walking. So we have um, just a little over half an hour for a walking period, and then... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.